If you innovate by pitching ideas rather than outcomes, you will fail. You have to pitch outcomes. Welcome to the Etch Podcast. We're back for a second season on capturing conversations from the most disruptive, innovative, and influential people around the world. And we start with a guest who embodies all of that. Our guest this episode is Greg Larkin. He describes himself as someone who maximizes innovation ROI within large companies. The author of the international bestseller, This Might Get Me Fired, he's launched products at Google, Bloomberg, Uber, and across the Fortune 500, which have generated an average return of 22 times. Greg is on a mission to empower entrepreneurs to do their most transformative work and is the founder of Punks and Pinstripes, a global community of entrepreneurs, intrapreneurs, and punks who support and empower each other. In 2006, Greg was the first person to publicly predict the subprime financial crisis. That prediction propelled him and his startup Innovest to an $18 million acquisition. Greg has lived all over the world, but his home is in Brooklyn, where he grew up. Greg, welcome to the Etch Podcast. Fantastic to have you here. Can you share with this audience what you're all about? Uh, I empower entrepreneurs inside some of the biggest companies in the world to maximize return on investment. Well, it's a great pleasure to have you here, Greg. Can you tell us what the response has been after you published your book, This Might Get Me Fired? And what kind of people have been reading it? The response has been bigger than I thought and from sources that I didn't expect. The reason I initially wrote it was because I had lived my life as an entrepreneur, in not just in the Fortune 500, but inside of Wall Street, which is in many respects some of the most risk-averse, infertile soil for an entrepreneur to thrive. And I'd had a few successes inside of that environment, but more than anything, I felt very alone. And I wrote the book because I knew that there were other people who felt like me and I wanted to just put it out there that you are not alone. Uh, In fact, if you were able to join together, you could be empowered in ways that might seem unimaginable right now. What has surprised me in the two years that have ensued is that the greatest feedback and gravitational pull for the book was not with the punks who are on the ground building innovation, building entrepreneurial products, but rather from the board and from the C-suite of the companies. The very people who I assumed would be offended by the book, it turns out they were not offended at all. They were grateful for the fact that someone finally had the audacity to say it out loud and to hold them to account and that they could hold up this book to the rest of the executive leadership team and the rest of their board and say, guys, read this, read this, don't not read it. Like when we have our next board meeting, don't show up until you have read this book and That's really not something I expected. I expected expected a bunch of class action lawsuits from those people. And instead they've kind of embraced me as a breath of fresh air and they've brought me into their organizations to transform them and and to like say it to them 
to their faces without any sugarcoating about how hard this is and how hard they have to work for, for, for real entrepreneurial transformation to actually come to life. That's something I really enjoyed about your point of view. It's not a top-down uh, operation. It's about the entrepreneurs gathering together and being able, uh, through the, the methods that you describe, being able to actually deliver upon the promise of innovation. Now, you cut your teeth in financial services, which is, the, to my mind, one of the areas of of most need for disruption. And the book is really a wake-up call on how a lot of these sized organizations, large enterprise businesses, need to wake up. And they've been treating innovation in the wrong way. I think there's a step that comes before that, Ross, which is be very clear about the cost of not innovating. We're not living in an environment anymore where you can treat innovation like it's an interesting side hustle. Retail is never going to be the same because it didn't innovate. Hotels are never going to be the same because it didn't innovate. Car companies, like you can speak to anyone in media. This idea that somehow the people who are the incumbents in these industries can find time and carve it out as a priority on their own schedule to finally come around to embracing innovation. And the idea that if you are wired like an entrepreneur inside one of those companies, you can wait for everyone to finally realize that you're the person they need to talk to is total bullshit. And we have the wreckage of the first wave of disruption littered all around us. And we are currently living in a moment where the next wave of disruption is already making landfall. After this pandemic, healthcare will never be the same. It failed. The extent to which there is a urgent and dramatic need for that entire industry to be disrupted for the sake of humanity. Forget about just because it's like inefficient and bureaucratic, no. like for humanity to be able to survive bad shit and come out the other side, healthcare needs to be radically disrupted. And it is for that reason that during this pandemic, you have seen groups of fewer than 10 people in under four weeks go from whiteboard, what does a ventilator do, to FDA approval, it's on the market and it costs $3,000 a unit while the incumbent solution costs $30,000 a unit. Like that medical device industry will never be the same going forward. They will never be able to sell a ventilator for $30,000 for the remainder of human history. So this idea that you have to start fast and give yourself permission to fail is complete bullshit. There's a huge difference between a company that innovates with urgency and a company that innovates with interest. And the companies that are not innovating with urgency are going extinct. Like that is the single biggest sign that they will not be able to survive the next wave of evolution in the same way that you do not see Cro-Magnon humans running around the earth anymore. You know, so this idea that someday you might get around to it is so self-soothing and complacent in the face of very real and present danger of how the disruption economy just annihilates industries and organizations that, that coddle that belief and allow themselves to cling to it. Innovation 
just isn't the oxygen that these large enterprise businesses are breathing. It's treated like a hobby, something to do in your 20% time, something that you may be able to do around your business as usual. And that's just not reality, is it? It's not reality. And, and I, I also think, um, you know, and, and I say it in the book, and I'll never have a reason to stop saying it because it's the hardest thing for large organizations to embrace. If you innovate by pitching ideas rather than outcomes, you will fail. You have to pitch outcomes. No one risks anything when they say no to an idea. In fact, in many organizations, if someone says no to an idea, they make themselves seem like they are uniquely capable of seeing into the future and averting a certain disaster. There is an incentive to say no to an idea. When you're in a company that is able to give people permission to present an outcome, you make everything a little bit easier because they're showing up and they're saying, I'm not asking you if this can be built. It's built. It is in the market. It is solving a real problem. It is moving fast. There is traction. I'm asking you to invest in it. And if you don't want to invest in it, then let me know so I can move on with my life and build it somewhere else. And when as soon as you have an organization where you're pitching outcomes over ideas, it completely transforms the balance of power around entrepreneurship, around building a new venture. And it also in those environments, when people continue to say no to an outcome, what tends to happen is they leave. The entrepreneurs leave. Um, and in my domain, which is big finance, which is where I kind of grew up, the entrepreneur exodus in big finance is the quietest, biggest storm that no one is talking about. But this idea of disruption 1.0, which is like Mark Zuckerberg in his dorm room in Harvard, wearing a black hoodie, doing tons of drugs, building out a thing so he can like rate women on campus and build a consensus quickly is such bullshit that is completely the early 2000s version of where disruption has come from. The next wave of disruption is a 50-year-old C-suite executive from a major bank or a major consulting firm that just had enough, that saw that their customers have needs that are unmet by their current banks and that they could do it faster, better, smarter, cheaper on the outside starting from scratch. And that journey from pinstripe to punk is the biggest driving force of the next wave of disruption is because of that driving force. I don't actually think six, seven, eight years from now, somebody is going to emerge in finance. Someone is going to emerge in management consulting where you're starting to talk about McKinsey, BCG, maybe even PwC, Deloitte. You're starting to talk about Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Citigroup, Bank of America, Barclays, the way we talk about Sears, the way we talk about Kmart. You know, these institutions that are just these defunct relics of another era of retail. And you maybe you didn't see that coming when somebody like Amazon first emerged or when someone like Google first emerged, but you can certainly fast forward to today. And I think literally in real time that the entrepreneur exodus is going to disrupt management consulting, insurance, big banking in the same way that Amazon did to retail, the same way that Airbnb did to hotels. 
the time that you can always monitor, or certainly the time that I can monitor this, is when bonuses are paid out between February and March at the big banks. And it's so interesting this year in particular, they've been slowly releasing little niblets of news that bonuses this year won't be what they have been in the past. What you're going to start to see is that the technologists within banks, and banks will pay a technologist, you can name your price, because no actual technological entrepreneur ever wants to work in a bank. So you can go in and you can say, I'm worth $750,000 base salary. And they'll be like, you know what, let's make it 800,000. So I'm currently monitoring LinkedIn and because within the world of big finance, I have a reputation of helping people who want to leave launch startups and finding co-founders and investors. My inbox, even with the threat that bonuses are going to be lower, is like every time there's that kind of announcement from say, I don't know, JP Morgan, I will inevitably get 30 inbound emails from JP Morgan from people like, hey, I'm a CTO on this product and JP Morgan, I think I'm ready to leave. I heard you're somebody who can help. That's not going away. And, and when you kind of zoom out and you see, all right, well, how much is that happening at scale? If we look at all of the startups launched by all of the entrepreneur exodus, what are they doing? How much are they eating into market share of their former employers? Uh, how scary could these things be once they get huge? You start to see some pretty like aggregate mega trends that are like terrifying. There's been an eightfold increase of banking executives who quit a bank and launch a startup. Over six, in 2015, that was 4% of bank executives who left a, uh, left a bank went on to launch a startup. It's 28% right now. That's just fascinating, isn't it? Why do you think that is? What is it about the C-suite now, which is changing their behavior? I think there's a few drivers behind it. One is there is what I would call, what I experienced, which is die on the vine syndrome. And die on the vine syndrome is when you build a product inside of a large financial institution. And it's, there's, you have product market fit, it works. If the technology is stable, you users are, are gravitating toward it, people are spending money on it. And then for no good reason, just political bullshit. Um, or an unwillingness to solve some sort of critical components of technical debt so it can integrate into the main architecture of the bank. They're like, yeah, it's a good product, but it's not right for us. So we'll, we'll switch it off. Um, banks are very reluctant to do a spinoff. And, you know, all of the architecture, all of the scaffolding inside of an institution like that is, is built for old banking services and businesses, which are often like a fax machine and a PowerPoint deck and Excel spreadsheets. And somehow, hopefully, they're all put on like a SharePoint site so people can grab them. You know, there's this mythology that banks are technologically evolved and they're not. They might have a lab, which is like a blockchain or AI center of excellence, but it's right next door to a fax machine and a PowerPoint deck that is responsible for like $100 billion of throughput a day. And so I think when you as a technologist and as an entrepreneur, you kind of go through multiple product launches, which achieve product market fit and then are killed for no good reason. It's a, it's a tough thing to go through. And you, you see, there's this thing that dawns on you after a while, which is if I'm capable of achieving product market fit, why the fuck am I here? Why am I squandering? That's like the most 
invaluable resource in the modern economy, but it's not an invaluable resource inside of Bloomberg or Citigroup. So that that's a thing, you know, that's that's been around for a while. Um, I think honestly, though, that's the same thing that prompted Mike Bloomberg to quit his job or get when he left Solomon Brothers in the 80s to build Bloomberg LP. I think, you know, that was the first wave of the entrepreneur exodus in finance. The difference now is what used to be an impenetrable defense. You know, it was so big and so much money and so large scale in banking that it just seemed like it was impossible to launch a startup that could ever hope to go head to head. And what used to seem like it's just the scale of it is too big to be uh, breached. You now look around and you have a bank like Deutsche Bank where it's not so big, it's just bloated. Like none of their systems are speaking to each other. None of their people are speaking to each other. It's a completely dysfunctional mess of technology and databases and political uh, factions that hate each other. And, you know, yeah, 15 years ago, I wouldn't have expected that. But Deutsche Bank for the past five years, Deutsche Bank is down 68%. The S&P 500 is up 75%. It's not an unbreachable moat. It's a pathetic excuse for intransigence. It's a pathetic excuse of what might have been considered scale is now just fat. It's ineptitude. And so all of those, I think what you're now seeing is that the entrepreneurs that struggle in an environment like that have a very real understanding of who the customer is and how they can serve that customer better and smarter than their company can. And the idea that you can go out and be disruptive was unthinkable when I started out in finance. Now it's not just thinkable, it's completely realistic. The investors that might have said, fuck off, right? Like I'm not paying, I'm not betting on someone disrupting Goldman Sachs or Deutsche Bank. It's a stupid, like, no. Now they're like, where have you been all my life? (laughs) Of course it's a good time, right? Like, I'll be greedy when others are fearful. This is clearly not working. Maybe you are the person who will make a better alternative to that. So I think there's investor appetite that wasn't there before. I think there's also investor realization that it's a bad place to park your investment dollars. And you just have this legion of entrepreneurs on the inside that have such an acute understanding of how it can be better. And on the outside, they can kind of all come together and build something disruptive and find one another and be emboldened to try. And I don't think all of them, more of them will fail than succeed, but the ones that do succeed, um, you know, that, that's the next Google or Amazon. You know, that's, it's not the direct-to-consumer revolution, in my view, is behind us now. It's going to be very hard for someone to emerge and disrupt Airbnb or Google. But the, the, the direct-to-enterprise revolution is just beginning. And, and that's the next wave of disruption. Bring it on. Greg, I got to know you through seeing that quote. I think Stephen Gates shared it on Twitter. And that quote is a chapter title in the book, the innovation that's necessary is never authorized. And what I took from that as a consultant and and you in that area now too, is that 
being external to an organization, we have a, a power that we can use, but also abuse. And there's still a relevance to having external consultants. Yes, it, it, you have a license to do it. The minute you abuse that license, you ruin your own credibility and that of everyone like you. There is an expectation that you can speak truth to power in a way that someone on the inside cannot. But that truth better be truthful and it better not be alarmist. And, and so when I talk about the cost of not innovating, I'm never saying that to a company with some sort of a platitude. I'm not saying it with from the perspective of a pundit. I'm speaking from the perspective of a practitioner and from the perspective of someone who has a degree of fluency in, in, in capital markets, where I can say these are some threats to your existing business where if you don't change and they keep growing the way they're growing already, I just want to role play what your earnings look like three years from now. I'm not doing that. That's a hard thing to pull together. You know, that's an extremely um, complex kind of investment calculation. That's an extremely, it's very quantitative. It's very research intensive. Uh, it's not... And it takes audacity, but it also brings credibility. You're, 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 acting, you're not just acting as the voice of the customer. You're actually acting as the voice of the investor. And that's a very important distinction. And so if you have the access to that kind of power inside the company as an outsider, it's not good enough to just be a voice of the customer. You, you have to be able to convey to them in real terms and actionable terms and credible terms, a completely innovation design agnostic investor who has no idea what agile is, who doesn't give a shit about design thinking, who's never heard of AI, is still going to be really disappointed if you don't implement a radical transformation. Because this is what your stock starts to look like if you do nothing. That's a very important thing to do. And if you don't do it, you have a very real risk of squandering credibility and wasting everyone's time. So yes, then the reason I know that is because I have done some voice of the customer work. And it's like, look, dude, you're the fifth person here who said that. That's, that's not what's going on, right? Like, I get it, right? I'm the I'm inside, I'm the person who is responsible for talking about what customers are saying. My CFO doesn't care. My CFO is very worried about the last difficult question he got on our last quarterly earnings call. How is he going to talk about customers on the next quarterly earnings call? How is he going to talk about some of the new things we're building on the next quarterly earnings call? There's a problem statement that all of my clients have and they never know how to articulate it until they see it hear me say it when disruption is our largest longest standing client has just left us for a startup it's probably too late for you to change you, you waited too long now you can take some emergency action to minimize the damage and get out in front of it but you are going to have to move faster and more aggressively than ever before. So like you have six weeks to get your shit together and to be aggressive and ruthless and be a better startup than the startup that's killing you. The phase before that is we innovate, but we don't really know what our return on innovation investment is. We have pockets of it, but we don't exactly know what's the ROI. 
We don't really know how it saves us money. We don't really have a clear sense of how it's growing our business and new customer segments. But we're pretty good on agile. You can very easily get disrupted. Like that's the step before our largest client has just left us for a startup. And then there's like the third, the, the pre, pre, pre-disruption, which is we just don't really have a, an environment where there are many entrepreneurs here. Like if they're here, we don't really know where they are. It's just not a company they like to move to. And the, and the, 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 that's the ideal place to start. <laughs> that's when you have the luxury of, of throwing a, 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 an entrepreneur coming out party and being, being really clear, like we don't ever want to get to a place where our biggest incumbent, longest standing customers and investors leave us for a startup. So if anyone is experiencing that on this call, they should reach out to me. Like if someone's listening to the podcast, they should like, if any of those statements are true, then you need to talk to me um, because you have an enormous amount of work to do and it's a much heavier lift than you've ever done it before and you probably are innovating already but you're not necessarily innovating in a way that's going to make those pain points disappear i totally agree greg i was in this position a few years ago just finding limits to what i was able to do and i think a great many of people within existing large businesses right now are probably finding frustrations and not knowing what to do. The minute someone says, well, I don't play by those rules and I'm still here. uh, There's a huge emboldened crew of people that will emerge out of the woodwork and, and, and stand up and be counted and join that crusade. But someone has to go first. And the person who goes first also has to find an executive godfather who will join them, who will say, listen, uh, if you are willing to raise your hand and join this, you have my support. I will fight like hell for you because the thing that keeps me up at night is that I'm at the helm of this organization as it goes extinct. Um, and that sort of, that's the snowball that gets the whole thing moving. Is the, that union between the punks and the pinstripes, between the godfathers and the entrepreneurs. Um, that's that's always where it starts. And the godfather, as you describe in the book, is someone who supports and protects the entrepreneurs so they can capitalize on these opportunities. They they, they play a, a, a role that's probably a little bigger than that. Their, their job is to fight for you. It means that people they've known for their entire career inside of that organization, it means they're going to have to say no to them. It means they're going to have to push back on them. It means they're going to have to call in favors when the normal bullshit obstructionists get in the way. And they say, you can't get in the way this time. I know you're used to having it your way. You're not going to have it your way. Not with this godfather, not with this punk. And um, I think the extent to which that's part of the job description is often minimized. The other thing that the godfather does is it helps the entrepreneur team translate market validation into ROI, into investor validation. Why would our shareholders care that you are spending our money in this way? And as soon as they're able to add that translation layer, 
where the voice of the customer and customer validation is also an engine of telling a story that investors, that it solves a problem that the company has wanted to be able to say to investors, we're fixing that thing you don't like. That is not possible without a godfather. It's just not. And it's not possible in just a single product either. It's a portfolio of products that do that. That governance system and the extent to which the godfather is preparing the entrepreneurs to make an investment case or, and saying also saying, we have a portfolio of products sprinting toward the same goal. It's okay for your product to fail. It's not okay for the portfolio to fail. So the only thing that's not okay is if you fail, if it takes you longer than eight weeks to fail, if it takes you more than $300,000 to fail, then we have a problem on our hands. But if you can sprint now uh, and fail quickly, great. We should have some places that are generating enough outcome-based positive validation that we can reallocate your team, reallocate your technology, reallocate your money. So either you're pivoting and you're starting over or you're working on something that is gaining traction and needs some more people like you to join. Uh, That's the role of the Godfather. Yes. When we first exchanged emails, Greg, one of the things that we talked about early on was around this idea of the portfolio of experiments. And I've never heard it be called that before. But now that I recognize it and understand it, it makes utter sense. It, it, you, you have a number of experiments. Some succeed, some fail. But this doesn't seem to be the way that enterprises work. They work on set programs. They're all focused on that. Why do you think organizations aren't multitasking? Well, look, most experiments fail, you know, and the reason a VC doesn't invest in one single startup is because nine out of 10 are going to fail. And that there has to be a degree of diversification and throughput, which gives you room to fail. And that's not to say that you have uh, tolerance of underperformance, but people have to die on their sword and it's okay for you to have, and then you can come back to life after you die on your sword. And if a company is not willing to invest in a portfolio mindset of venturing, then they're not prepared to venture. They're going to put so much pressure on something, one product to be okay, that eventually they're going to be like, well, because you can't fail, you have to loose, you have to tighten up a little bit. Don't go quite so fast. And, and you fast forward enough of those messages. And then a year later, it's exactly like every other fucking business in the company. It's moving slow. It's not really disruptive. It's not really changing anything. Uh, it's just been co-opted to the point where it's safe to the point of being inconsequential. And so I, I, I think what a, having a portfolio forces you to do as a business is building some sort of scaffolding for one of those experiments to work and being very clear about how it's going to grow once it starts to work. What is the next what does a series A mean inside of this company? What does a series B mean inside of this company? What does an exit look like? 
do we want this to be a, a standalone product that has its own, it's a semi-autonomous business unit here? Do we want it to be a spinoff? Do we want this team to build it and then go and be a portfolio manager across other products that are like it? Like how you invest, who's part of the team, the technology architecture that you build around it changes completely from day zero, depending on what that ideal exit looks like. And you never have to think about that if you never force yourself to think about that if you do not have a portfolio mindset. A portfolio mindset is a single product mindset, rather, is we're dipping our toe in entrepreneurship. A portfolio mindset is we're changing and we're prepared to put some old habits to death. And you know that message will not be sent with a single product because you don't have the, you're not giving yourself the permission to do all the radical changes for that product to evolve. Most people's first startup doesn't work out. A good venture should be risky. It should be that you strike out a lot um, and you have to be able to attract people into your company or, or give permission in your company who are willing to swing aggressively. You don't slow down. When you come here and you work in this portfolio, the rule is you don't slow down. Even when it's really scary, you don't slow down. Even when you think you're going to crash and burn and spin out of control, don't slow down. You never have a mandate to say that if it's a single product. That's absolutely fantastic, Greg. Thank you. What are you working on at the moment? Is there some things in the works? And what's exciting you outside of working with clients? I mean, the thing that excites me right now is the kind of... I'm working with the the C-suite executives that... um, they've restored my faith and hope that entrepreneurship is possible, that the innovation that is necessary is possible, um, that the kind of speed that is possible, that is oftentimes resisted is possible. And, And I think when they hear the problem statements of disruption, like our biggest client left us for a startup, uh, we don't have, we innovate, but with no discernible, meaningful ROI. Yeah. So look, um, anyone who's out there that is an executive inside of a company that feels a sense of urgency about um, maximizing ROI and avoiding disruption, like they should, they should just reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn. They can reach out to Greg at punksandpinstripes.com. Um, so that's thing one. Um, the thing two is I've been, I'm, I'm working currently with a company called Boundless. Um, they're great. I'm, uh, I'm advising them. And we're building out a network of boot camps around the world to get portfolios of products in large companies to go through that first eight-week sprint. So a lot of the things that I'm talking about in terms of um, thriving in the new age of disruption, understanding what your cost of not innovating is, um, maximizing ROI and minimizing the CNI, which is the cost of not innovating. 
that's something that people understand they have to do, but how to do it and who needs to be involved and what they need to do, it's, it's tough. Um, and what we're doing at Boundless is kind of taking them through the first steps of that. Um, so that's really exciting. Uh, we have a few cohorts that are kicking off in Texas. We have a few cohorts that I think are going to be kicking off in Dubai. We're, we're inviting applications from people who want to participate in this. Um, so that is the sort of entrepreneur breakthrough that I'm pretty excited about. The other big thing I'm working on on the, on the side is I'm writing my next book, which is called Pinstripe to Punk. And uh, in, in it, I, I'm focusing on some of the the entrepreneur exodus startups that that um, I think have a meaningful chance of disrupting finance in particular in in the way that uh, like Amazon disrupted retail. So um, if anyone thinks that they are part of that entrepreneur exodus, you should also reach out. Excellent. I'm sure they will. Well, Greg, thank you so much for spending time with us on the Edge podcast today. I've had a great conversation with you and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Ross. Good time. So that was the interview with Greg Larkin. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did recording it. And if you want to learn more about Greg, go to thisisgreglarkin.com. And if you want to find out about past episodes and further links on the podcast, please go to etchuk.com forward slash podcast. And I'll see you next time.